Wandering Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 106. Today, we'll take the train with Oswald to Minsk and observe Oswald as he starts to get settled in this new place, a place that was not of his choosing. This will begin a two-year-plus stay in the Soviet Union, a period where Oswald is exposed to the harsh realities of Soviet life in 1960, a place where he gains some notoriety as a novel American, a place where he finds some real friends, a place where he grows and studies some, and a place where he finds love more than once. And finally, a place where he transitions, perhaps surreptitiously, into the next version of Oswald. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's get to Minsk first. It's just a train ride away. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 106 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. What were the Russians to think of this man, this American, this American Marine that had just attempted to commit suicide in Moscow in order to stay in the Soviet Union after he had been given the order by the Soviets to go home to America, to get out of the country? Sir, your visa has expired. Well, when all these circumstances changed, Oswald would instantly become a high-profile political element now, a dynamic that immediately emerged based on the circumstances, an American Marine who defected to the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. This was news, and sensitive news at that, so the decision was made by the Soviets to let Oswald stay, for now, in the Soviet Union. But their decision was to send him to the city of Minsk in the Republic of Belarus, get him out of the limelight, a strategy perhaps to solve a number of problems for the Soviet authorities. That is, by taking him out of the focus that is Moscow in Russia. Minsk, simply put, is not Moscow, and especially when it comes to the political spotlight placed on an American defector. The politics of having him in Minsk were arguably better for the Soviets. But was there more to it than that? Perhaps, That has been one of the lingering questions for years when studying Lee Harvey Oswald in Minsk. We'll get to that soon enough. In 1960, Minsk was beginning to emerge again. It was post-war Eastern Europe. You really have to put this period of time in context, especially in Europe and Russia. It was just 15 years after the end of World War II. This area of Eastern Europe had suffered massive destruction during the war and was still Well, digging out of that massive destruction, and in Minsk, perhaps, it was close to the height of that infrastructure rebuilding exercise in the post-World War II era. By some accounts, nearly 80% of the city was physically destroyed by the Germans, the Nazis, during the war. Minsk is located about halfway between Moscow and Warsaw, Poland, and at the time, it served as the capital of the Belarus Republic in 1960 
with a population of about one million people. The Belarusians speak their own language, and as is typical of so many areas of Europe, they have a culture that is a mixture of the surrounding regions, that is, the Poles, the Balts, and the Russians. Minsk was also the home of a large Jewish community, which suffered some of the worst Nazi Holocaust excesses recorded during World War II. After the war, the Jewish population was reestablished there in Minsk, with many Jews coming from various parts of Eastern Europe under Soviet control, a place where the Russians decidedly helped to concentrate the Jewish population again after the war. And this, along with other social dynamics, helped Minsk to develop into a more sophisticated and urbane city than some other parts of the Soviet Union. In a fitting and ironic gesture, much of the post-war rebuilding in Minsk had been performed by Germans who had been taken prisoner during the war. This city that was destroyed by the Nazis, well, it now had been rebuilt by German POW slave labor. The Soviets effectively rebuilt the city in the 10-year period after the war, before allowing the German prisoners to return home. Despite the horrors of the war, this post-war approach was extraordinary and horrific in a sense all by itself, in its own way. But in the final analysis, Minsk emerged rebuilt, and in a little more than half a generation later, after the end of the war and the devastating destruction that came with it. Housing in Minsk was more available and of better quality than in Moscow. Minsk had been a major industrial center before the war, and many industries returned to the region in the post-war era. The city was also the home for several important academic institutions, research centers, and, interestingly enough, military police and intelligence academies. This is an important point of note, because the CIA, at various times over the years, reported that there were no intelligence schools in Minsk. And certainly the idea of there being intelligence schools brings into question as to whether Oswald became a part of any of that on the Soviet side of the ledger. In advance of Oswald arriving in Minsk, the KGB chief of counterintelligence in Minsk received a small dossier on Oswald from Moscow Central. The file contained mostly reports by in-tourist informants and officials, a summary of Oswald's request for asylum and official disposition thereof, and a report of Oswald's suicide attempt. No details were furnished on Oswald's military history, and there was nothing about his family or his past life in the United States. Oswald was characterized in the file as a disgruntled former U.S. Marine private claiming to be a Marxist and seeking Soviet citizenship. In short, it appears that Oswald was identified by the Soviet authorities, at least initially, as a potential threat to the USSR and not as a possible source for intelligence. There were expressed orders that Oswald was not to be formally debriefed. The KGB at the time appears to have considered a number of factors and scenarios in their analysis of Oswald's threat potential. First, Oswald's former service in the Marines was alarming to them, as the KGB perceived the U.S. military as a frequent recruiting ground for U.S. intelligence agents. Second, Oswald's claim of being a Marxist was suspicious to them. In their minds, he had poorly formed ideas and didn't seem to understand very well the Marxist-Leninist theories. The Russian authorities also feared, perhaps, that Oswald spoke better Russian than he let on, 
and again, perhaps indicating that he was indeed trained by the U.S. government and that he really was on a spy mission. In this vein, they also considered whether Oswald was on an intelligence assignment to check out how the Soviet authorities handle U.S. defectors. Not all of their theories were spy versus spy. The Soviets also considered whether Oswald's motives were genuine and whether he was simply seeking to immigrate to the USSR. Finally, they considered the real possibility that Oswald was mentally unbalanced. In any case, at this moment, the Soviet authorities had defined their initial mission when it came to Lee Harvey Oswald, and that was to ensure that Oswald was not a threat to the USSR. And with that, always came the possibility that Oswald was nothing more than simply a legitimate immigrant to the USSR, an American who might then turn out to be a real piece of propaganda for the Soviet machine. The Soviets decided that they would need to monitor Oswald quite closely. So two days prior to Oswald's arrival in Minsk, the Soviets chose a case officer who would coordinate the network of informants and day-to-day surveillance operations around Oswald. The author, Norman Mailer, in his book Oswald's Tale, does a wonderful job describing all of this. In his book, Mailer gives this officer the pseudonym of Stepan Vasilievich Grigorev. We now know that his real name is Alexander Fedorovich Kostikov. Oh, and by the way, there is no known connection of this man to Valery Vladimirovich Kostikov, the Mexico City USSR embassy resident KGB officer whom Oswald allegedly met with in 1963. This is another example of the remarkable coincidences that occur in the JFK mystery. What are the odds that two KGB officers with the same name would be connected to Lee Harvey Oswald. Alexander Fedorovich Kostikov would remain as the case officer until Oswald's departure home and would then be further involved in the KGB's actions in Minsk after the assassination. Alexander Fedorovich Kostikov personally ran and debriefed a good portion of the Russian informants close to Lee Harvey Oswald. Who was this man, Kostikov? He was a local Belarusian born in the Mogilov area, according to Mailer's account. During the war, Kostikov had supervised the interrogation of German prisoners. After the war, he revealed a talent in recognizing spies among former Soviet citizens who returned to the USSR from the West. Although he was not fluent, he spoke and understood a little English. Now, let's turn to Oswald's arrival in Minsk. Oswald traveled by train from Moscow, and he did it by himself, unescorted. And he did it after being ordered to Minsk by the Soviet authorities. He would have departed from Moscow's Belorusky Vogzal, a few blocks outside the Ring Road on what was Gorky Street at the time. There was no need for an escort at the time in Soviet Russia. Had Oswald attempted to get off the train at any point before his destination, it would have been almost a certainty that he would have been quickly and easily apprehended by local authorities. Oswald arrived in Minsk either on the night of January 7th or the morning of January 8th, 1960. He was met at the old Minsk station by two Soviet Red Cross employees and brought to the Hotel Minsk in the center of the city. We say Red Cross because that was code and cover back then in the Soviet Union. 
not the Red Cross as we know it, but part of the Soviet surveillance infrastructure. He was checked into Room 453, a budget accommodation intended for Soviet citizens. According to an entry that Oswald himself entered into his own historic diary, Oswald was greeted on his first day by the mayor of Minsk, who promised him an apartment and warned him about uncultured persons who might insult foreigners. The next day, Saturday, January 9th, his second day, he was immediately placed under KGB surveillance. Those reports were later transcribed and, in a moment of Cold War thawing, were made available to the West. Norman Mailer refers to them in his book. They are a highly detailed account of what Oswell did in those first few days in Minsk. For example, he exited the hotel for 45 minutes that day, from 11.40 a.m. until 12.25 p.m. During that period, he visited a few stores in the neighborhood, a butcher shop, a grocery store, and a bookstore. He also returned to the train station, and he looked at a photo display, and he also stepped into a restaurant for a moment. After returning to his hotel, he had lunch in the dining room and afterwards went up to his room. At 4.40 p.m., he came down to the hotel restaurant and returned to his room 45 minutes later. You get the picture. The KGB watched him the entire time. That night, the KGB suspended surveillance at 11 o'clock p.m. These detailed surveillance observations would continue, and at one point, the Soviet authorities drilled a hole in his apartment that he would later obtain, and they did that in order to peer in on even the most intimate of his goings-on. After these first few days in Minsk, Oswald would write something more on January 11th in his historic diary, and the entry goes as follows. I visit Minsk radio factory where I shall work. There I meet Argentinian immigrant Alexander Zeiger, born a Polish Jew, immigrated to Argentina, 1938, and back to Polish homeland, now a part of Belarusia, in 1955. Speaks English with an American accent. He worked for an American company in Argentina. He is head of the department. A qualified engineer in late 40s. Mild-mannered. Likeable. He seems to want to tell me something. Now, let's fast forward a few days to Wednesday, January 13, 1960, which was day six in Minsk for Oswald. It would be Oswald's first day of work at the experimental shop, as it was known. Oswald begins working at the Minsk Gorizont, that is Horizon, radio factory. The KGB would continue their methodical coverage of Oswald under surveillance and observe him entering the factory that morning for his day of work and leaving at 4.25 p.m., then taking a series of trolley buses back to his hotel where he arrived at 5 o'clock p.m. At 7.55 p.m., they document that he comes down for his dinner in the hotel restaurant and retires back to his room at 8.25 p.m. The surveillance that night is suspended at midnight. The KGB notes in their records that Oswald is employed at the radio factory in accordance with Order Number 6 as a regulator, first grade, in the experimental shop. Under that title, Oswald would operate a precision metal lathe and make parts for radios. It is possible that Oswald worked at two locations during his term of employment at the Horizon Mints radio and TV plant. 
Prior to being posted in a metal lathe shop, Oswald was first assigned to the experimental shop where parts were produced for new technologies and components in research and development. This is an interesting aspect of what the Soviets did with him initially. Was it an attempt to flush him out as a spy? It is not clear how secret the work was at the experimental shop, but certain witnesses believe that he was probably six weeks to several months at the experimental shop before he was transferred out. It was unusual for someone like Oswald, particularly someone who was probably a genuine defector, but was unskilled, uneducated, and suffered from really a bad work attitude to be assigned to something like the experimental shop right off the bat. Were the Russians baiting him to see whether or not he would move quickly to secure some form of what could be sensitive information and try to transmit it to the West? For the record, Minsk KGB officers deny that they had anything to do with Oswald's work assignments. There have been some folks who would say that this entire experimental shop experience in some ways was an interesting parallel to what happened to Oswald when he returned to the United States and worked at the Jaggers Childs Stovall firm in Texas, the photolithography firm that had military contracts within the U.S., where Oswald worked from October 12, 1962 to April 6, 1963. In the period January 13 through 1960, Oswald would again write in his historic diary, I work as a checker, a metal worker. My pay, 700 rubles a month. The work very easy. I am learning Russian quickly. Now, everyone is very friendly and kind. I meet many young Russian workers my own age. They have varied personalities. All wish to know about me, even offer to hold a mass meeting so I can speak. I refuse politely. Upon Oswald's return to the USA in 1962, Oswald would make notes and produce an essay about his time in Minsk. Oswald hired a secretary to type and correct his handwritten essay about Minsk. He ran out of money before all the pages could be typed. These are excerpts from both the typed and handwritten pages in a version correcting the grammatical and spelling errors that Oswald's dyslexia caused in his writings. Let's read it now. This factory manufactures 87,000 large and powerful radios and 60,000 television sets in various sizes and ranges, excluding pocket radios, which are not mass-produced anywhere in the USSR. It is this plant which manufactured several console model combination radio phonograph television sets, which were shown as mass-produced items of commerce before several hundreds of thousands of Americans at the Soviet Exposition in New York in 1959. After the exhibition, these sets were duly shipped back to Minsk and are now stored in a special storage room on the first floor of the administrative building at this factory, ready for the next international exhibit. I worked for 28 months at this plant, a fine example of average and even slightly better than average working conditions. The plant covers an area of 25 acres in a district one block north of the main thoroughfare and only two miles from the center of the city, with all facilities for the mass production of radios and televisions. It employs 5,000 full-time and 300 part-time workers. 58% are women and girls. 
500 people during the day shift are employed on the huge stamp and pressing machines where sheet metal is turned into metal frames and cabinets for television sets and radios. Another 500 people are employed in an adjoining building for cutting and finishing of rough wood into fine polished cabinets, a laborer's process mostly done by hand. The cutting, trimming, and the processing right up to hand polishing are carried out here at the same plant. The plant also has stamp making plant, employing 150 people at or assisting at 80 heavy machine lathes and grinders. The noise in this shop is almost deafening as metal grinds against metal and steel saws cut through iron ingots at the rate of an inch a minute. The floor is covered with oil used to drain the heat of metal being worked on, so one has to watch one's footing. Here the workers' hands are as black as the floor and seem to be eternally. For a good cross-section of the Russian working class, I suggest we examine the lives of some of the 58 workers and five foremen working in the experimental shop of the Minsk radio plant. The shop itself is located in a two-story building with no particular noticeable mark on its red brick face. By 8 o'clock a.m. sharp, all the workers have arrived and at the sound of a bell sounded by the orderly, who is a worker whose duty is to see the workers don't slip out for too many smokes, they file upstairs, except for 10 turners and lathe operators whose machines are located on the first floor. Work is given out in the form of blueprints and drawings by the foreman, and workers are assigned based on various reliability and skills called for the job, since each worker has, with time, acquired differing skills and knowledge. Thank you for listening to episode 106 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 